I, I need to learn like you need to learn. We're going to read this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 28, a most interesting chapter in the Bible. Uh, and we're going to do some looking into it. But let's first read uh, 18, uh, 19 verses uh, of 1 Samuel chapter 28. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish replied, Very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. Verse 3. Now Samuel was dead and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came to set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, put on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult the spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her lungs, voice, and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like, he asked. The old, an old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel. And he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed, Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams, so I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me? Now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. If you've been around for a few weeks, we've been talking about lessons in the Old Testament from the life of David. We've been mentioning that from David we can learn things about his faith, 
And we can learn things also about His flaws. And from each of them, His faith or His flaws, we can learn something that can profit us. And that's actually why the Old Testament was provided to the church upon whom the end of the ages has come so that we can read the Old Testament and learn from the old examples that would profit us in the new. Now, though we're on a series on the life of David, it would be inexcusable, I think, for me, and I think you would feel robbed, I would hope, that if I skip the 28th chapter, which just sort of springs out of nowhere, and we find Saul consulting, we titled it The Witch of End. Well, that's what's the most popular name given to this particular chapter in this event. She's actually not a witch, but she's a medium, and we'll talk more about that. But as far as David is concerned, he's only referenced in the first part of the chapter, the first uh, two verses. Because David, if you remember from last week's sermon, leaves the, the nation of Israel, as it were. He, you could say he, uh, he, he abandons them and he turns coats on them and he goes among the Philistines and he joins in with them. He lives in their territory. And the Scripture says that he was there for one year and four months. And the reason why he went there was because he feared for his life with Saul. Saul is fearing his life before the Philistines, and now he's going to go to the medium. There may be some analogy there in the fact that David is fleeing to go to the Israel, to, to go to the Philistines, and now Saul, in his desperation, is fleeing to try to find some answers from a witch of Endor, a medium of Endor, so that he can have his curiosity satisfied in hopes that something good is going to turn out of it all. So that's all we read about David here. So there's this interim uh, beginning at verse 3 and following until uh, we get to the next chapter when we pick up David again and what happens to him after that. So for the moment, David is still among the Philistines. The Philistines are engaging in preparation for war against the Israelites. David, of course, is in their ranks and... There's an appeal to David now to be really engaged in battle. Because previous to this, David has not been engaged in battle against his own company, against the nation of Israel, the people that he loved and lived for, and who he was willing to die for when he went up against Goliath of Gath, the champion of the Philistines. And of course he won the victory because the uncircumcised had to be denounced. And God's glory had to be magnified and David was used mightily in this case. So, Achish, who's fooled by David, is allowing David to remain in their ranks and even assuming that David is willing to join them now hot in the battle. No comment is made here. We'll have to pick that up in the 29th chapter when David ends up escaping because they realize we can't trust David. His, his past is a negative against us utilizing him, so they end up releasing David, which of course was a relief to him to not be a part of such an attack against the Israelites. The second thing that's mentioned in verse 3 is Samuel dies, and all Israel mourns for him, and he's buried in the town of Ramah. That's significant. That's where he was born. And this is another reason why Saul has anxieties. First and foremost, the Philistines 
are about to attack the Israelites. Samuel is sort of the mainstay for the nation. It was sort of the lean on for Saul, someone who he could go to, but he's dead and out of mind and out of sight. Now what is he going to do? He's terrified. The next part of verse 3 tells us, Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. According to the Torah, the law that was given much earlier in, in history, indicated that all, all of the spiritists, the mediums, the sorcerers, the witches, etc., were not only to be expelled, but they were to be killed. They were not allowed to live. That's where you might have heard about the witch trials in Salem and so on and hanging of them. Well, I think they drew their beliefs from the Old Testament where it does say that you will not allow or suffer a witch to live. Well, Saul allowed them to live, but thought he had expelled them from the land. He ends up going against his own convictions, and he ends up going to one for refuge. So we discovered that David is now in Ziklag. We said last week in the sermon title, he zigzagged to Ziklag. He was in a state of flux, not trustworthy at the time. He was deceptive. He was not in a good spiritual state. It's been said that that was probably the lowest ebb of his life as a, as a God-fearing man, as a man after God's own heart. He lost that joy. He lost that enthusiasm in, in the comfort of being with God's people and in communion with the Lord. So he's joined himself to the Philistines because of his fear of Saul, and he's basically out of the picture. Samuel is dead. He's buried. He's out of the picture. He was the one that had anointed Saul, and now... Verse 3 tells us that he was buried in the land of his own hometown called Ramah. Now, I want you to look at this map with me if we can get that map up. And that's one of the reasons why I'm down here. I just want to point out a couple of things to you. Uh, if we, if you you're probably not going to be able to see it. But the battle is right here in Shunem where the Philistines and the Israelites were, uh, particularly the Philistines. Israel is on in uh, Gilboa, over here, and you can't see all of these, I'm sorry, it's, it's kind of fuzzy, but Endor, if you could see that right there, this is where the medium is. Now, it's interesting that we find that here, where Saul is, he goes, out of desperation, he goes up to Endor, because he's informed that there's a medium there. <clears throat> Whereas Samuel is buried, and I don't have the name, I couldn't find a map that had all these different names of places, but Rama is somewhere down in this vicinity here where Samuel is buried. And yet he's going to Endor to ask to be able to have, through her necromancing ability, to raise up Samuel, when Samuel was, I estimated, about 20 miles in distance, it would be like <clears throat> going to the Hope Cemetery in Worcester to compare to, say, the town of Brimfield and go to the Witch of Brimfield or the Medium of Brimfield to try to get the body, a ghostly body, of Samuel raised up from Worcester, that's about approximately 20 or so miles away, I'm estimating. Keep that in the back of your mind because that is significant. So, 
Why did Saul go to the witch or to the medium in the first place? It's because the Lord hadn't spoken to him in three possible ways. First was dreams, which was not an uncommon way for God to reveal certain truths to certain people. Secondly, it was the Urim. Now, maybe some of you don't realize what Urim is, and it's not easily definable in the Scriptures and for us to understand it, but apparently they were two stones that were placed in the breastplate, breastplate of the high priest that wore this. And those two stones represented, one the Urim, the other was the Thummim. These are two Hebrew words. We know that Urim means lights. We're not sure of exactly what the other word uh, Thummim means. Probably it means something along the line of light of truth or revealing of truth. So these two stones are utilized in a special way for God to communicate in a divine intervening way His mind on certain matters. And it would be through the high priest that Samuel, Saul would have got his information. There was no communications coming to Saul from the Urim or the Thummim. The Urim is used in, 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 uh, as a shorthand, so to speak, for Urim and Thummim. And the third way was by the way of prophets. Prophets were God mouthpieces. And we know that there are at least two uh, in the area. We know of uh, Nathan. We know of Gad. And I'm sure there was others, as we know that there are different schools of prophets that circulated among the Israelites. So there was no divine communications that Saul had. Yet remember that Saul should have known from the from the Torah, from the book of Deuteronomy, as it says in 18 and verse 11, let none be found among you who is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. Uh, the word for consulting the dead is called necromancing. You'll, you have, we have them in society today. They've been around for many, many years. They're ancient as far as that goes. Let's define what a medium or a spiritist is. And this is who Saul is going to for consultation. A medium or spiritist is someone who consults the dead on the behalf of the living. Their primary practice was to communicate with the spirit world, particularly with the dead. The ghost was the spirit of the dead. So the function of the medium, this medium of Endor particularly, was to call up the spirit. Now remember in the New Testament when the disciples were praying for Peter when Peter was in prison and locked up, supposed to be executed that very day. He shows up knocking at the door. Rhoda goes to answer the door. She said, she saw what she thought was Peter. She goes back in, explains. They said, it must be what? The spirit of Peter. There is a real spirit world. I have to define. Not a lot of explanation yet in Scripture even for that matter. But we just leave it all to the Lord. So this here chapter is the only place in the Bible where necromancing is actually practiced. That we have an example of how it was accomplished. A medium or one who has a familiar spirit. The word medium itself in the Hebrew literally means an owner of skin bottles, which is strange. An owner of skin bottles. 
And therefore, it means the extended belly of the ventriloquist. The spirit was supposed to speak from the belly of the ventriloquist. That's important to understand as as a definition of what a medium is and what happens in this instance. And ventriloquism was not the only way necromancing was performed, but it was a popular way. It's a practice of magic involving involving communications with the dead, either by summoning their spirits as apparitions or raising them bodily for the purpose of obtaining future knowledge or events or bring someone back from the dead. This obviously raises a lot of questions. Was this medium really able to raise up Samuel from the dead? Was this simply a delusion? Was Samuel in this instance resuscitated? Or was this a demon of some sort? Is this credit due to her magical powers? Did she actually raise up Samuel? Did this portion divulge the the condition of the disembodied spirits of Old Testament people in Sheol? Samuel says, why have you disturbed me? Why have you interrupted my rest? I wonder if the R-I-P that you'll see on gravestones that's been mentioned about tweets to, to uh, Kobe Bryant and others to R-I-P, my brother, rest in peace. Maybe we get that from here. You could do your own research on that. The word Endor itself. She's the medium of Endor. The word Endor actually means the spring of the assembly of gods. Of gods. Well, we have four choices here. I'm going to suggest. First, we have a normative necromancing. You know, in the Old Testament, the spirits of the dead were believed to descend to the underworld called Sheol. This was a nebulous region of continued existence. And this is a fact, and this is important to understand, that the Jews in in Hebrews of the Old Testament, the Old Testament canon itself indicates that there was this mystical, shady region of Sheol where the spirits of people who died would go. It was nebulous. If you ask a Jew today, a practicing Jew, one who's knowledgeable about Judaism, there again, is a, there still is a, a large ambiguity about the state of the dead after their death. Why is that? Do we have to have that same kind of ambiguity? Again, remember, they're dealing with 39 books of the canon, we have, had, we have the supplement to the 39 books, the 27 New Testament books. And with the New Testament books comes greater light. It's sort of like an Old Testament person would be like the Queen of Sheba. But when you get into the New Testament, it's like she's arrived, it comes to meet Solomon and says, wow, the half had not been told me. The picture is now completed. Someone described the Old Testament this, this is the problem. If somebody resorts like a Jew would and accept only the 39 books of the Old Testament as canonical and as inspired and as teachable for us, there's, there's, there's limits to that. 
but still there's light there as well. Someone described the Old Testament as like, you ever been in a lightning storm when, you, when, when the power has gone off in your house and everything is pitch black and when lightning goes off, the whole house lights up just for like seconds and then it goes off again. Well, that's what you could say the Old Testament was like. It was like light that all, you know, off and on it comes and there's some light shed on certain things. But the New Testament is when the sun is shining and it's brightest and we have a whole house that is lit up. That's something to keep in mind. So, is this a normative necromancing would be one possibility. Secondly, would this be... Could we take sort of a semi-neutral position on this? Not committed to what it is of the of rabbis of the past as they've analyzed this portion. They concluded this. It's been said about them. They did not speculate on her technique in conjuring up Samuel, but said this quote, She did what she did and said what she said and raised them up. Talk about a neutral statement. I guess that's as neutral as you can get. Let me repeat that. He did what she did, said what she said, and raised them up. Without any commentary. That's, that might be a safe place to go. The third possibility is that this is an absolute satanic hoax. A satanic hoax. By the way, I want to just ask, did anyone, does anybody have, or did you have a position on this before you came? And I'm not going to try to change your mind. I'm just going to try to give you some of the options here. I can say that I pretty much have. I think those of us that have been readers of the Bible probably have concluded. And I think we may have been challenged by different people about this uh, and asked questions. What's going on here? Is this, is this real? Well, whatever it is, that's a possibility. No one less than even Matthew Henry says, quote, it is a counterfeit. The, a- the apparition was an impersonation. It wasn't really sample. And there are some that would go along those lines. The fourth one is that this is an exceptional case. The Cultural Background Study Bible says this, that in this instance, Yahweh seems to go beneath his normal dignity to raise up Samuel from the grave to the surprise of the woman. But this in no way validates the efficacy or the acceptability of necromancing. Furthermore, it cannot be used to draw, this is important, a conclusion on the nature of the soul or the state of the dead because because this could very will be an exceptional case. We would not want to focus on this portion. We've been studying on our Thursday morning Bible study, hermeneutics, how best to read and understand the Bible. And one of the things that we mentioned last week, or going to be mentioning this coming week, is isolating a verse or a portion of the Scripture, taking it first out of its context, and then taking it out of what is believed and understood in a systematic way that this is what the Bible in general does teach that could not be violated by one isolated verse or a portion that's taken out of the context. It's been said that a text taken out of the context is a pretext. 
So one must be careful in interpreting certain portions of the word in a way that might feed into a particular theological perspective that you may want it to have when it really is not, in essence, the teaching of the Scripture. Now, Charles West, on the other hand, and others, many, many commentators, believe that this is in an exceptional case. When Saul says, excuse me, when Samuel says to Saul, really giving his final answer, tomorrow you and your sons are going to be with me. Now where is he? Why have you disturbed me? He's in Sheol, but obviously in a place of peace, tranquility, serenity. Why have you disturbed me? So is he saying to Saul, you're going to be in peace and serenity? This verse could be used, if you assume that to be what is being said, you could assume then that Saul must have been a believer. He must have been a saved man for him to be able to have that said to him. Now listen to what Charles Wesley says in a, a poem that he writes about this. What do these solemn words portend? These words being, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. What do these solemn words portend? A ray of hope when life shall end? Thou and thy sons, though slain shall be, tomorrow in repose with me. Not in a state of hellish pain, if Saul with Samuel do remain. Not in a state of damned despair, if loving Jonathan be there. Remember Jonathan? Jonathan, who loved David like his own soul, they were true blood brothers. They really loved each other in the Lord. So what does it mean? Think of 2 Samuel 12, 23, when David is anxious over the state of the baby that was sick and was possibly at the brink of death and he's fasting and praying that God would spare his baby's life. The baby ends up dying and his consolation is, I know that he shall not come to me, but that I shall go to him. And of course we would take that passage, and it has been taken commonly to believe that children, babies, infants, go to a place of peace. Go to be with the Lord. Go to be to paradise. And David, of course, being a man of God, a man after God's own heart, there's no question about David being a child of God. And if David says, I'm going to go be with, with that baby of mine, we, can, we would assume that the baby was in paradise and David too in the future would go there, but the child in paradise would not come back to David while he was living. I think that's wrong, although I don't think the teaching that I just gave about it is wrong. I don't think you can deduce that from that verse because I believe it harmonizes with the situation here. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. What is with me? Where is that going to be? It is the realm of the dead, period. Without any, any explanation of what this state is like, where it's at, etc., etc., we can certainly say from the Old Testament, we do not get the complete picture until we turn over to the next set of canonical books that are included now in all of the 66 books. We have things that Jesus introduces. 
that had no one had ever heard before. No one spake like this man. This man speaks with authority. In the book of Timothy, it says that he brought to light life and incorruptibility to light through the gospel. Jesus could tell us in Luke 16 about a rich man and Lazarus that dies. And he says, and immediately after their death, after the burial, it says one is in a place of torment and one is in a place of comfort. Wow. Who could say that? Only Jesus. Jesus brings to light things that were otherwise in twilight zone. Jesus is the one who he says to his own disciples, many righteous men would love to hear what you're hearing and to see the things that you're seeing, but they have not heard them. Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 1 says, God who in sundry, at sundry times in divers manners spake in time past unto the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. He's the last of all of the prophets of prophets, so to speak, you could say. He brought in the final revelation. So now we have things in the New Testament like when Stephen is about to be... St- when he's stoned and about to breathe his last breath, he can look up to heaven and say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus could in essence say, you today will be with me, like to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Not in death, not like what was said by Samuel to Saul. Samuel is simply saying, you're going to be in the realm of the dead. You're going to be dead like I am. But yet, there's something even deeper than that. This, like I said, there's some questions that could be raised from this. And we have, I think, some answers. Some of them are factual. We know that there's continuity of life after death. Consciousness of life after death. When a person dies, that doesn't end everything. It's only a transference. It's only a shedding of the body, but yet a continuation of soul survival. Not soul sleep. It's the body that sleeps. It's the soul that survives and stays consciously alive. Now, I don't understand how Samuel could have this knowledge about the future. And this is, this is the part that becomes, I think, the exception and not the rule. Samuel... Anyone who dies does not all of a sudden get omniscience. They don't know the future. They don't know what, what is not knowable to us creatures here on earth. They don't gain some kind of a, a demigod status simply because they died. And you'll get these kinds of things when you look at these what are called NDEs, these near-death experiences which I've been doing a lot of study on this past, I suppose, six or eight months. Read numerous books on it, and at some point I'll, I'll say more about that in the future. But that is one of the most dangerous assaults to the Bible and to Christianity and to truth in general. You know, it's not, it, it puts the Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, Seventh-day Adventists, all the, all the cults together... I have nothing in, 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 in comparison to the kind of challenge that near-death experiences have to the Scriptures. Why is that? I think because in Second Thessalonians, it tells us something about the times. It says that this is what it will be like in the coming days. 
about this coming of the wicked one, the Antichrist, whose spirit is already in the world. We know that. It says whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure or had an ear for unrighteousness. I was talking to somebody just recently who has gone to mediums, fortune tellers. The person said to me, well, you're not open-minded about it. I've said, I don't have to be open-minded to the devil and the demonic world. I have the truth that is in Jesus. I have the inspired scriptures that tell me the truth about the Lord. It's changed my life. I know I belong to Him. I know my destiny. I know where I'm going. You are trusting in an ambiguous, a faulty, and a demonic spirit world that is feeding you falsities that's going to give you a hopeless state for eternity unless you turn to the Lord and read the Word of God. That's critical. Let me bring out a couple of key points here before we close this out. I did want you to understand the difference in space between Endor, going to the medium of Endor, and Samuel's buried 20 miles away in Ramah, which happened to be where his birthplace was. When she sees this figure, she says, I see a ghostly figure coming out of the earth. Now, she sees it. Saul does not see what she sees. But Saul and Samuel are having a dialogue. There's communications going on. I believe that it's really Samuel speaking here in whatever state he could be classified, he is the communicator here to him. He classifies himself as being in a, distur- in, in a place of peace because he said, why have you disturbed me? Obviously, Saul is under stress and anxiety and he needs some answers. And he goes to the wrong place. He had, he had eradicated, so to speak, all the mediums and now he's running after one. The Bible talks about building not again the things which you destroy. If we come out of Egypt, let's not go back to Egypt. If we put away this out of our life, let's not try to retrieve them and get back, get them back into our lives. That can be very dangerous. You may have heard me tell the story before, but for the, for the majority of you probably you haven't, but this is an actual case where uh, I met a brother. He happened to be... a um, with preparing our refrigerator, we had a problem. We had to call for a, uh, a technician to come in. And, and in the meantime, I was on the phone and talking to somebody about the Lord. And he said, then he said to me, oh, you're, are you a, it sounds like you're a Christian. I said, absolutely. And then he was a Christian. So we're talking about the Lord and whatnot. And I asked him a little bit about his family. And he mentioned that his, he had lost his 27-year-old son just uh, a couple of years before. I said, oh, that's unfortunate. I'm sorry to hear that. And he says, oh, yeah, it was terrible. I said, and I could tell he wanted to talk about it. And I asked him what had happened. Well, him and his wife with this 27-year-old son who brought a friend with him, all the four of them went on a cruise, I believe a Caribbean cruise, and uh, he, he had a, a, an allergy, I believe it was a peanut allergy, and on the, on the trip, he actually had a, an al- al- 
allergenic uh, reaction, allergic reaction to a, a particular food that he shouldn't have partaken of. And sometimes they don't know what's in, what ingredients are in what they eat. Well, anyway, he knew what he was going through. So he went f- down five stairs uh, cases to get to the medic's room. And he told them what, what he was going through. He was obviously in a panic. To make a long story short, they didn't treat him properly and he died on board of the ship. Now, the ship had to go to the next island to stop. Their hopes were that the body could have been, you know, taken off and the family could have... No, they wouldn't allow that. They went to the next island. Same thing. The body had to remain on the, on the boat for this whole trip. Well, it, it, the brother said it was like a vacation in hell. And I can understand uh, the euphemism describing it that way. But worse than that... I don't know if it could be said worse, but the mother had such anxieties over the loss of her son that she just needed to know. And she was a professing Christian. And he certainly was one, and a solid one, it seemed to me. She believed that she was so anxious to get in touch with her son that she started reading books on spiritists and necromancing and fortune-telling and things of this sort. She was reading book after book after book, started going to mediums, and then claimed that she was actually having communications with her son. And the reasons why she said she was going to this extreme against her husband's wishes and against her husband's exhortations, what the Scripture says, and what this world of demonism can be like, she nevertheless still pursued it because she wanted more than anything else to know what kind of existence her son was having in this post-mortem state that he was in. Sad. Well, Saul similarly is under severe pressure wanting to know what to do. He actually turned from the mediator to the medium because he could have gone to the Lord. He was anointed by Saul. He had prophets around him. He knew about the Urim and the Thummim. He had the high priest there. There were other men of God that he certainly could have tapped into. But Saul's life is a very confusing one. It's a very fleshly one. He's not obedient to the Lord. The Lord chastises him. And this is what First Chronicles 10, verse 13 and 14 says, which I think that's how we understand Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture for us. First Chronicles 10, 13 and 14 says, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. Saul, this chapter begins in Samuel with Saul saying, God's not speaking to me. I'm not hearing from him. But Chronicles said he wasn't inquiring of the Lord. Sometimes people want answers when they don't want to really seek the Lord earnestly from their heart. There's a big difference between the two. He did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Arthur Pink puts it this way. Under the pressure of trials, relief is what the flesh most desires. And unless the mind is stayed upon God... There is a grave danger of taking things into our own hands. Saul, it seemed, had exhausted all the possible routes of communications with God. Now he's taking another route. 
That failed, that let him down, now he's going to find his own way. That's what our flesh could do too. We can stray from God. We can take our eyes off of Him. We can be on, on the walking on water with the Lord in front of us. And we're still panicking because we're looking at the externals, we're looking at the waves and the wind, and we're not seeing the one who's in front of us, who's in full control. And he had been on the boat with him before and saw how he was able to calm the storm and the waves and the wind and all of that, and yet he's with the Lord and he's panicking. At least Peter said, Lord, save me. But when he was looking away, the mind starts to get anxious. And that's our tendency. We can even learn from David's nemesis, Saul. Saul's a tragedy. A tragedy. David fails over and over again for sure. But you know what Saul has taken out of his life? We're going to see him on a different course when we turn to the the upcoming chapters and see what David has to say about Saul rather than what you and I might have to say about Saul and maybe how we might talk about others possibly too who we may have less esteem for than maybe what we ought to. But what can we draw from this? I think the conclusion is Saul, in desperation, forgets the mediator, the true mediator, and goes to the medium. We, too, can very easily put God on a shelf and say, I don't know what happened to him, but I'm going to find answers to my life. I'm going to get the answers to what I need. That's not working. Someone said to me on the phone the other day, I tried it. It didn't work for me. It didn't appeal to me. Talking about Christianity and the revelation of truth from God's Word. It didn't work for me. That's why I've turned here. Bad mistake. When you turn away from the truth, there is no other truth than the truth. When the disciples left Jesus, professing disciples, He turns turns to the true ones and says, Are you going to leave me also? No, the true ones will stay. Let's be true to the Lord. Let's not give up on Him. Let's be like that widowed woman who continues to knock on on the door of the unjust judge, pleading with Him because we are His elect people. He will hear our cries and we don't have to go to external resources to try to find answers when the answers may be delayed. And that's where we have a problem. And I'm not one that likes delay. I'm impatient. I like to be three days ahead of myself. When people ask me to do something, I don't want to wait another week. I want to do it right on the spot because I don't trust that I'm going to get it done. After that, I want to get, I want to get ahead. And that's why we need to be patient because we have a tendency of being impatient with the Lord. And Saul was fretful. Just like, uh, uh, remember when he, he, he was waiting on Samuel to come after seven days for the Lord to speak to him out of impatience. If he only waited just a short while longer, there wouldn't have been a problem. But what does he do? He forces himself to offer an offering in the place of worship and he's smitten for having done that. These are the kinds of lessons we need to learn. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is true. Thank you for the guidance that it gives to us, Lord, because... So often our minds wander, our thoughts take us in directions, Lord, that you wouldn't want us to go. Help us, Lord, to not seek the mediums, as it were, whatever they may be to us, Lord. Uh, Things that are contrary to you, Lord. We know, Lord, that you are 
the upholder of all things, visible and invisible. And help us, Lord, to have that true trust and confidence in Yourself as the sole mediator for us. Because, Lord, You love us and care for us. We pray for anyone here, Lord, in this room that doesn't know the Lord Jesus, who don't have answers to their life and may be turning to things that are turning them away from You, Lord. We ask, O oh God, that You would turn them to the cross to behold the Lamb of God who did a work on the cross for sinners such as them and who continues to live at the right hand for saved ones such as us so that we can appeal to You, O oh God, in our earthly journeys of trials and tribulations. Hear our cry, Lord, as we give You praise in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.